And now, the Rathband Tapes, Episode 4, Senses Working Overtime. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, whatever time it is. Welcome to the Rathband Tapes. My name's Tony Horn, ghostwriter to the late PC David Rathband in Lancashire, England, and in South Australia, David's twin, Darren. We're telling David's story in his own words, reviewing tapes that have been stored away for over a decade. You'll hear David describe key moments in his story, the case, some of which are quite painful. We'll also take you to some places that have never previously been in the public domain. And Darren, I think it's really important that we talk about being blind. A couple of bits of background here. Firstly, I think the public know a policeman was shot and was blinded. They don't know the bits that are in the middle of that. It's not as simple as one sentence. And the other point that we should make is that as David is being repaired, patched up in hospital, of course, the manhunt in Rothbury, Northumberland, is still underway. So when we talked in an earlier episode about trains being on a collision course, we have two parallel scenarios playing out here there is that manhunt but at the same time we have a policeman your brother your twin in pieces on a hospital bed in newcastle tell people what you saw the very first time you entered the ward david sort of lying on a on a hospital bed there was kath in the room uh, there was a nurse just doing something with either a drip or something that, that was hanging from a, a pole. He was bandaged up sort of the top half of his head, couldn't see his eyes, and then just saw what, what was striking about him, really, other than the bandages, was the fact that he looked yellow. He, he didn't look well. I did note, and that was the first thing I thought, oh, his skin's a different colour. I think that was probably, Tony, the iodine that they've washed his face with, but he didn't look well. And I walked in, took a deep breath, and then I said, Hey, up, it's Darren. This would have been the Monday, I think, yeah? So you, on the Saturday, you're in Australia. <laughs> it's extraordinary, isn't it? Um, yeah. It's, trying, trying to remember the particulars is sort of we... Our Sunday was July the 4th, take at least 20 hours to get home. And obviously we have to go back. I think it was nine hours at that time. So it would then be Sunday morning. <laughs> it's just silly, silly trying to keep up with it. But it took us two days, I think, because I remember thinking, well, I always said I'm only a flight away. And we got there as quick as we could. We couldn't have got there any quicker. Yeah, I mean, it's actually about four or five flights. In reference to some of the medication that you're alluding to there, operation after operation, I think. But David says in the book... I was very groggy when I came round, aghast that such experts were even allowed on the news. So this is referring to the fact that 
there was wall-to-wall TV coverage. Anybody and everybody was an expert on the terrain in Northumberland. And I think it's a, it's a good point because yeah, we can get over many physical injuries that we suffer in life. We can't get David's sight back. The mental side just keeps on coming at you. David says, God, I hurt. It was just about all I could muster. Every part of my body was banging. Push the syringe driver. Keep pushing it, one of the nurses said. I was now inseparable from the PCA, patient-controlled... I don't know how you say the next word. Analysia? Yeah, I'll leave that with you, Tony. (laughs) Pumping me with morphine. The pain was that bad again. Having been sort of given the information that David had been shot, and not not shot once, shot twice, the second shot, really, the, the information, it wasn't broken up to say one shot was straight in the face, the other shot was to his shoulder and back of his head. It was just he'd been shot twice. I didn't expect to see him as well as I did see him. I thought he would not be able to acknowledge me. I thought he'd be in a, incuba- uh, intubated. So I was, I was quite surprised and quite pleased that he wasn't as bad as the information uh, that I got would have had me believe that he could have been. Yeah, and I think that's well worth saying because snippets of information before Darren takes flight from Australia, a front-page newspaper as he arrives in the country, and then... That moment, we've all had moments on a superficial level, like doing an exam, a driving test, getting married, having an interview. When you walk through a door with a sickly feeling in your stomach and you know that when you enter that door, it's a different world. But this this is off the scale. You've seen dead bodies before as a policeman etc nothing could have prepared you for this no uh, and and i don't i think you're probably right tony and really if i look back at that particular day it's you're sort of looking at it from above because you don't know how to deal with it you don't know what to say i was told very early on that david was blind uh he wasn't he generally he wasn't told that uh, was he no he he was he he was clinging on to the hope that he kept one of his I think I think it might have been his left eye may have not been damaged severely enough and there may be some sight that was that transpired not to be the case later on but that's and nobody would tell him I wanted to tell him I wanted to tell him as soon as I knew but um, Kath uh, chose not to so I went with that decision at that time. I have a recollection that it was a Thursday, the first or the second Thursday, when he knew for sure. Um, on the first Thursday, David writes, they'd managed to stabilise my face and Kath explained to me how it looked. My forehead was distorted, swollen like a football. I'd had no bruising on Sunday, but now was black and blue and yellow in pieces from all the stitching, which the colours there that you relate to. And that, with severe bruising, uh, that can happen, I think, and stay for... A hell of a long time. 
Oh yeah, I, I think he was. He, he still had evidence of bruising when he when he left the hospital. And what Tony? It, I think there was a paper said thirty seven bits of shrapnel were in his face. He had more than thirty seven. There was hundreds, hundreds of little metal pieces in his face. And I think there was an X ray on one of the papers that showed the severity of what what actually hit him virtually between his eyes. Yeah, let's let's talk about that. Um, the pellets that remained inside David remained right up to the end of his life. But, uh, my face is really hurting. My, all my eyes gone really tight and horrible again, and I'm, I've got Thursday to look forward to. Not. I've got no idea what, what they're going to do. I've had a pellet pop in my head this evening, which has made my head a mess. But one of the pellets was in, in my head, and it's... Um, there was like a bubble of fluid which has popped, which has then obviously gone all over my head. But it's extremely sore, and I have now like a quarter of an inch depressed hole in my head. I think it's really important here that we hear David in his own words because uh, nobody else can describe this. And as I alluded to in the introduction, it hasn't been spoken about. I went in at eight o'clock this morning, so it was I had to fast from last night, obviously. And the plan was to go in and um, I had to identify all of the pellets that I could feel on the surface. It was just a basis of going in and whatever I could feel they would take out. So that is months later. Months later. So David's in hospital as we've described him. The pellets are there. And months after he has been discharged, he's still going in. One psychological aspect here that i want you to know is that david would say to me that every time he removed a pellet that was another piece of moat that he took out of him and if you want a definition of tragic this is a terribly sad moment that his assassin is embedded in your brother for forever and a day. Yeah, it's it's certainly uh, poignant, isn't it, listening to him. And I, I, when he was here visiting us, Tony in Australia, uh, Angie, my partner, would sit there and he'd say, "Angie, come here a minute, see if you can get this." And she'd go over and she'd say, "No, no." He'd say, "Go on, yeah, get these." And he'd have he had a special pair of tweezers which were really narrow at the end. And she'd and he'd, he'd squeeze it, scrape it, and he'd say, "Right, there you go, grab grab hold of it." And she'd grab hold of one or two, drop them in a in a dish, and you'd hear that that metal sound. And you, I just used to sit there and go, "Not only has he gone through this trauma, then he every time he has his nightmares." He, he's obviously left blind for the rest of his life. He, he can he can feel every bit of being back at that in that patrol car every time he pulls a piece of pellet out of his face, and he was doing it up until the the day he left us, Toby. You mentioned the nightmares. Um, Moats came to David in his mind, often. He also struggled with 
something we've mentioned a couple of times, which is called Charles Bonnet syndrome. Mm -hmm. Spend a moment just to Google it. If I recall correctly, Charles Bonnet syndrome was in a medieval era, something that wasn't recognized as a syndrome and would have you sent to some sort of asylum, but it's a, a very real condition for the blind. Can you, Darren, try and sum up what it is? It's related, of course, to the images that yeah. that David would see of these people. I think my understanding, when we walked into the room with him, Tony, he'd sit there stroking his, his, his left-handed move, like he was stroking something that's lying next to him, and he kept doing it. And then from stroking, he, he'd put his hand up a little bit high to sort of to sort of fend something off or swipe something away. His hand had moved. And then he, then a, a bit sort of a bit later on, nobody would say anything. David didn't say anything. And then he'd just drop out. Oh, the dog's here with me. Oh, I can see, I can see bright colours. Rose is here. Or, and then he, he described that's what he was doing, stroking his dog. And Charles Bonnet syndrome is, and I think it's if you've had sight and then you lose your eyesight, your mind, your brain tells you that you can still see those images that you've had throughout your life. And David would constantly have these hallucinations that I suppose if, if you're in a dream world, they're, they're nice things to have. But when you know or you've got an idea that you're blind, because you've been, David wasn't stupid, Tony. He knew he'd been shot in the face. And I would suggest that 95% of him told him that he wasn't going to see again. Uh, he was just hope, hoping these hallucinations wouldn't have been a pleasure for him at all. You know, I was telling you about the images I get. When I get them, if I, I can see... I can see images of, like, outlines of Kath. I saw one the other night. But their faces are... There's no definition to their face. It's just like melted skin, which I can't... For the, I can see the outline of the body, but I can't... The face just looks as if it's been melted. And I think this is why this passage is very important, because that will be... Even though we wrote about it in the book... The book is 10 years ago. It's not a detail that people take in. But this is the... You, you can hear him describing physically what's going on, but in the deliberation in his words, you can feel the pain and the stress. And again, if you want a definition of stress, this is a stressed man i mean it's real stress it's not stress i've got a parking ticket stress i'm late this is proper proper stress a couple of nights after i had that vision from Ralmo where he came like right in front of me after the mm -hmm. sentencing and i just looked at him and, and laughed to myself not out loudly and he just it just went completely blank and he disappeared and uh I lay in bed and I said, I said to myself, that's the last time you will ever, ever visit me. And he's never been back since. So that was later at the, the trial of the two accomplices. And I just put that bit in there now because whilst we're discussing this, I just want to show that David was able to shake off Moat coming to him at night but this is an extraordinary uh, 
selection process going on in the subconscious, I suppose, of what images he is able to receive. I think that clearly shows he's struggling with not only, quite rightly, what's happened to him, but mentally he is a clear candidate for suffering mental health trauma-related PTSD. And there he's clearly showing how your brain tells you that how to file things and ptsd is your body your brain you're not able to deal with the the full uh, sort of the full story because your brain protects you it tells you not to go and look at this particular thing now david filing that piece is one piece of a multi-piece jigsaw how on earth nobody became or made sure he had the mental health support at an early start of this whole tragic story is beyond me. And I think that's something that needs to be addressed. Yeah, absolutely spot on. And the brain is torturing and the body is receiving medication after medication. And David won't have a clue what's going in him. They're called. They're antidepressant. They're actually an antidepressant, but they can be prescribed for sleeping disorders, like a very mild sleeping um, tablet. So he did have those, but as he says, it's for sleeping. And one of the points with the nightmares is that there was a point every night when David was asleep that he couldn't get past. He would always wake at the at the same time. And you can probably guess when that was. It also, this physical response in the body, I'm going to guess, because we have no knowledge, places a responsibility on the other senses that you have, some sort of compensation almost. Every time without fail, I get this smell in the hospital. And regardless of how new it was, I could still smell this, like, fresh blood, butcher, shop, cut fresh meat, place type thing up. So David described his feelings towards the, the hospital there, but he, he told me that his smell was accentuated. Um, I don't know how that works physically, but clearly we've got a man here who has lost one of the principal senses and has got to rely on uh other things that the brain is capable of yeah i think i think your brain does go off different tangents uh different tracks in and makes you sort of hear things taste things um and i think david was aware of that tony but what what we need to sort of re- sort of keep in our fresh in our minds is the fact that david was in the dark all the time so you said if he got to sleep Usually people who've got uh, some issues in their life go to, that's the only rest they get from mental health problems because your your brain is constantly turning over question, question, question. You go to sleep and you get some respite till it starts again. David, I know David struggled going to sleep because he was constantly in the dark. And I think trying to just put that into perspective, the fact there is no change to that. It's dark when he's awake and it's dark when he's asleep. And this is a bloke that drove a T5 Volvo at some silly speeds, did all the courses, loved his driving, couldn't even couldn't even tie his shoelaces. 
And that helplessness and that realization that he needed help is something that's unraveling day by day. We will come very shortly to preparing David to go home. It seems extraordinary. He was home within a fortnight. On the question of the senses, you will realize with blackness all around you how important conversation is. But that wasn't easy for David either. Think about it. You generally, unless something's behind you and you'll have an awareness, then you generally can see people who are talking to you. I think uh, certainly my hearing, I just feel it's like 40% more, which is sometimes a bonus because I can hear things I shouldn't be allowed to hear, like people talking. But on the other side, it's quite off-putting because I have to I haven't yet learned to tune in you know when you tune a radio in and you're just missing the station and you get all that gobbledygook which you know there's talking but you can't make it out I get that and it's really uncomfortable but I haven't learned the skill of toning all the dead noise out to listen to what like past the crowd if you know what I mean I think he sums it up well there as as much as we can know and I suppose if you shut your eyes for five seconds uh, right now, you'll feel the urge to open them back up after five seconds. Imagine having that for the rest of your life. From a mental point of view, Darren, you can see that, one, he's in a terrible state but you fearing the worst his body you, you know is is okay yeah it's it's when it's not it's, it's, diff, it's difficult isn't it because you see your brother who in theory should be dead as the surgeon said he shouldn't have survived the shot to the, the middle of his face that should have finished him off that was only by a, a, a look and then you look at him and you're happy that he's alive and then you're told he's blind and then knowing your brother, you think he'd be better off dead. And I know that sounds really, really callous, but honestly, if you look long-term, would it have been better for him to die at the side of the road and, and have the accolade of being killed on duty rather than a suicide because of his injuries? That's what people don't think of him now as a police officer that's life's been taken because of what job he did. He, he took his own life because of the injuries. That doesn't make any difference to the memorial of the police, the fallen police officers, but it's, it's not fair, really. There is, as far as I'm aware, no, no plaque or anything no. like that for David. No. Extraordinary, isn't uh, it? I mean, that's careless, I think. From Northumbria Police. Uh, yeah, it's, it's look. I think, like I say, if he'd have died in in the footwell on the side of the road, it would have been completely different. It would have fit in with their sort of planning and expectations of a police funeral. Trouble is, David told me before he left Australia that's he didn't want a police funeral, which said they went against his word. Any case, number three. It's a bit of a shame, really. But do you know what? That that's the least of our concerns, really. Can you say to me that? In those first hours, when you 
see your brother as you've never seen him before, that you knew he wasn't going to make it. And I'm talking about the mental struggle. Yeah, I knew. I knew pretty... As soon as I was told he was blind, I knew he wouldn't be around for too long. That that was one of the reasons, Tony, that I sat down and said to myself, I need to do something. If I don't do something to keep him busy, he's going to kill himself. And that's why I, with his friend Paul Johnson, with his help, started the Blue Blue Lamp Foundation. It wasn't... wasn't Dave wasn't even interested in the charity. He says, get off. I don't want to do a charity. I'm too busy looking after me effing self. That's what he said when I told him. Yeah, but I, I knew it was... Um, we were on we were on borrowed time. To put some numbers into the equation here, David lost two stone, I think, in hospital. The basics of life, eating, washing... I think Kath would wash him. It's a long time before he has a proper shower. He's eating liquidized food, soup, and ice cream. I don't, Tony. I don't think David had the appetite for food. I think he he knew he knew the outcome. I think you said, you mentioned that Thursday. I think I was in his room when he went down to see the specialist, and this. This is the moment I, I briefly mentioned to you some time ago, where I could—I was in his house. I was in his—he'd been moved to a different ward, which was down, down, down a floor, and um, he was going to see the specialist about his remaining eye. And I could hear him. He'd obviously been—he was coming back up, and I could hear him uh, banter with the nurse, pulling a leg, laughing and joking. Sounded just like my brother. For all intents and purposes, there was nothing wrong with him. Same sense of humour. The nurse was laughing. I thought, oh, here, he here he is, here's our kid back. And then as he got closer, I was looking forward to that moment where he just walked around the door and for some stupid reason that it, 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 it was going to be a normal entry. And unfortunately, what I did get was this hand, and I always remember this, this broke, this broke, broke me into, this broke me. This was the first time I actually realised that my brother, my big brother was as broken as he as he was, I saw this right hand, and the fingers come round the door frame, and um, he stopped talking because he was obviously concentrating on finding the doorway. And the nurse said to him, "Yeah, that's your room, David." And his hand came round, and it went up like like a blind person would feel the way round the door. And I just burst out crying, and then he walked into the door, stood there, and went, "Well, that didn't go too bad." Real nonsensical, and I—I I don't know if they told him or. Well, I, I couldn't even speak to him. I was crying my eyes out, and he obviously the benefit was he couldn't see me, so I—I I obviously just took a big deep breath in, held my voice, sorry, held my my voice in. He walked in, I walked out, and that's when I—I I knew that he was—he was never going to be the same big brother. On a purely practical level. I can recall in my own life visiting somebody in hospital for two to four weeks. My own little girl was premature. Nothing on a par with the pain and the boredom of those people you see in a hospital bed. But Darren, you're displaced here. You have no home and no friends in Newcastle-upon-Tyne. 
how do you pass the time? Uh, I think I went. I went into protect your brother mode. I was, I was adamant that I was going to make sure he had a job. I was adamant he was going to be looked after. I was adamant that he was going to know that the family were there for us. And I, it from an early sort of time on, uh, Tony, you'll know that the press friends. Like we got off the plane, there was press. We were pushed into a unmarked police car. There was press outside the hospital. There was stories. There were stories already released in the tabloids. And we obviously, I then thought, well, I'm going to look after my brother. I'm going to make sure he gets looked after. So I, I was busy. I, I never had a chance to stop and think about long term. I was obviously I was already thinking about a charity for him. I was thinking about getting some money off a national tabloid, dealing with the press, Gerard from Sky, who became a little bit of a nemesis. So I, I, I was busy. So that, and that was the good thing. But that later on, that becomes a bit of a bad thing because it sort of comes certainly comes around and smacks you and says you're in trouble mentally. Yeah. And that's all part of the 15 minutes of fame. I'll come back to that in just a sec. Um, what's the status of your home in Australia, your air ticket? What Have you come on an open ticket? Is somebody looking after the house? I mean, I'm terrible for getting on a plane and worrying that I've left the taps on, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, what, who's looking we, after Darren? We had, um, I think very soon on, we had, we had a couple of friends over here that we we rang and said, look, We've got to go home. David's been injured at work. Um, they said, right, just just go. We, we basically just dropped the key, put a key under a mat, and they came and obviously looked after I think we had a cat or, yeah, we certainly had a cat. But you know what? We just left it. We got on the plane. We had a return ticket. And we were fortunate, Tony, because, there, like, again, there's, there's, no, there's no avenue for somebody to help those who are financially uh, not in a position to come home for their loved ones. And police force, police services don't actually give a flying hoot about family. It's it's the public persona they're interested in. So we were lucky we could afford to come back. Did you know what your return no, date was? It going was to be? Um, open. No. South Australian police, who I was working with at the time, the one of their chief superintendents said, "Darren, take as long as you want. I'll we'll sort it out. You just take as long as you want." And that's you know what I'll remember that for the. The rest of your life, that was chief. I think it was chief soup. And you would feel that was in contrast to what you felt in in England. And here's something David said to me much later about the bills, the cost of being blind. I think a story had appeared in the paper. So Darren's touched on that. We'll we'll have a little word on that in a sec. But this is on the dental work, and again, this is not. This is something David would have said to me in the spring of 2011. The difficulty with me, Tony, is I'm quite loyal to the Chief, you see. I mean, I know I've berated the Federation because they've done even worse. I mean, you know, I, I waited four months to berate the, the Federation. I gave them time to change things. And the Chiefs, you know, the, the things in place to pay for my teeth. I mean, all my dental work's about £3,500. And they pay for my two lessons a week for learning how to walk with a cane. But that's it. And then the article came out on Friday and it was, he'll have to pay back all the benefits he's been given from the police. Well, I've been given nothing. That is quite disturbing to, to hear. The reference to the Federation, uh, David's feeling was that 
to put it politely, he was seen as a piece of administration rather than a person who'd been through uh, what he had. And the press itself, I can remember talking to David about this. And you talk about doing a deal with a newspaper. Some people can be quite cynical about that. But I remember David specifically saying two things to me. And that one, he thought you felt you wanted to do something. You don't know what it is, but you wanted to do something. And the other is David felt that the wrong people were getting coverage in the press and that's why you courted them briefly Tony I have to I have to like everybody else at the end of the day I have to sit and see if those decisions were right and I think they were at the time David had suggested he didn't want to speak to the the press which was understandable he was he was in recovery Kath was adamant that she didn't want to speak to the press and nobody should speak to the press and I tried to explain to her that irrespective of her thoughts somebody would speak to them. It would. It may not be her, it may not be David, but somebody would be getting a, something from the press. And the only thing David needed was money to make sure he was supported. I, I've been in the police long enough, Tony, to realise that they give, as least, they give as least as they can to an injured officer. It's by the book. You don't get anything extra. He had to, his walking cane was too expensive for him. They didn't want to pay for that. I... I, I I managed to get him a, a reasonable figure for his story, which was exclusive to the Sun. And you know what? That that money probably helped him buy his cane, modernise a house, so he could actually live in that house. This is a very difficult thing if you've never been in this situation to understand. Two points. Firstly, Darren is correct that somebody will write this story and somebody will tell a story that might not necessarily be at the heart of that story my stance has often been if you feel that somebody is going to write that story then it's your responsibility to shape it whether or not you detest the newspaper they're going to write it so get in there and have your say and the other we've just played you a clip of david later talking about dental bills three and a half grand that's just the dental bills. There's a whole load of other bills to come. So financial gain through selling your soul to the media is actually an attempt to achieve financial parity. Some people won't feel comfortable about that, but... I think it was the correct thing to do. And just to give you a little bit of context to what the press were writing, we're in this period where Raoul Mote is a hero. We're in this period where, I believe her name is Siobhan O'Dowd in Burnley, not far from, ironically, where I now reside. She set up a Facebook group. And the noise in this case is something that is extraordinary. Let me tell you what noise is. Noise is the tin drum in David's head banging 
echoing with a hollow repetitiveness. That's what noise is. As this period unravels, so David is shot on the 4th of July. He has two weeks in hospital. It has become clear, as Darren alluded, that he is blind and there is no way back. What happens next? Well, I know David will have nothing but praise for the people that treated him, the many, many people that treated him. If you've ever been at the hands of the NHS, you will understand that you're not the only people on that ward. They've got a job to do, resources are tight, and I think their responsibility is to place you in the best position to enter the next stage of your life. So you're ahead of me here, aren't you? The next stage of David's life is dealing with being blind and going home. It seems extraordinary that he was home a fortnight later. Um, At the beginning of this episode, we talked about the reality of being blind and the need to explain it. Darren just told the story of how David's fingers came round the corner all the time that the consultants are shining lights in his eye to see what there is all the time that the morphine is being topped up all the time that his yellow skin is being looked at all the time that he's being fed liquidized food there is a program to help David deal with that inevitability mapping out the room that he was in. First time I went in the room, she made me stand at the door and um, map the room out, which is, I've never done it before. Basically, you just stand at the back of the, with your back against the door. She explained everything that was in this new room, and then I had to walk around on my own to find everything. To put it bluntly, Darren, after the ordeal of everything that David's been through, this is like being back at school as a young kid isn't it he has think, to start from the I beginning it's even worse than that tony at least if you started school again you'd have some idea you'd have all your senses i just i can't understand where he would have been going from an active police officer dad foot referee cricketer to being in the dark it's just it's just heartbreaking and the, i think the lady who's kindly took David on there was Penny Penny. If it wasn't for her, I think David would have been stumbling around for a lot longer because there certainly wasn't no impetus to get David back on track as a matter of urgency or put things into place by Northumbria police. They were as slow with his recovery as they were with the detention certainly the detention and arrest of Moat. And when David talks about mapping out the room there, by the way, he's talking about a hospital room. He's not talking about rooms in his home, though, of course, this is preparation for going home. So he's not talking about a place where he's been before and was comfortable. We are learning the basics of mapping out a room, just a generic, ordinary hospital room. And when that lesson is over... And you reflect, you can only reflect, good 
Lord, this is my future. This is my future. And at the same time, as we've joined this media circus, my gut feeling is that there was something in David that just wanted to keep going. So family visits to the hospital, armed guards at the door, the chief to come and see him, medical help mapping out the room and countless visits from surgeons and consultants. But David too does do some media this is the first time that he's spoken extraordinarily brave words. I think anybody who heard him talking particularly to Victoria Derbyshire on the BBC would have found what they want to see embodied in a British police officer. And for a brain that is struggling with Charles Bonnet and morphine, the brilliant policeman was able to be so articulate in that this is where it begins in terms of already preserving the evidence for a future trial. So remember, it's midweek, Motis out there two accomplices have been arrested but you don't know that and david says these words you know i bear them no malice there's something there's a switch there darren there's a switch that has despite all of this enabled him to represent himself as a police officer yeah, in the media I, I think i think and he did brilliantly unfortunately it, because of his his job and what had happened, he, he's found himself in that position. And I think, and I think, if if it was his choice, he would have rather have. I, I would suggest rather have been a normal victim because we've mentioned it before: the victim, the policeman, the witness. He's expected to be professional. He can't sit and dribble into his hat and become a a, a wreck, or can he? Maybe he should have. Maybe then he would have got the help that he needed rather than put on a a face for the public and everybody else. To he was all right. I'm, I'm fine. He obviously wasn't, Tony. And I think that was the difficulty. I didn't know David at that point, And I won't say, well, I will say, I fell for it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I fell for it. Yeah, he was. That's how and good you know he was. What? And if you look at when he came back from Australia, after all, and I know I jumped the queue, but he's very... He's very good at putting that face on. When he was putting these messages out, when he was here, that he was broken, his relationship had crashed and it was all over. He gets back, gets met by one of the inspectors from Northumbria Police. And when he's asked, are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. I'm just tired. And how how normal an answer that would have been for somebody who's just got off a flight. It was that normal that that inspector with no welfare training, no mental health training, said, yeah, okay then, David, we'll see you, see you later, and let him go. Nothing characterises the policeman witness victim scenario more than there was one day when David had to give, in hospital, his 
I think it's called an aid interview. So he has to recount his experience to... I'm not actually sure who it was, but some people in the system, they may have been independent of Northumbria police or they may have been part of the police. I'm not sure, but he had to give an official account of it. And it was either just before or just after the two interviews followed each other. He did a piece with the national newspaper. So he went through the same story twice in, in succession. And I know that doing so left different emotional reactions on him. On the one hand, he's the policeman. On the other, he's the victim. So all this is going on in certainly the first week and then the second week that David is in hospital. By the second week, of course, it is over in terms of the manhunt. And the rest is just beginning think for a moment about a traffic officer david rathband a man who darren says knows how to drive a car fast his vehicle was as much part of his body as his body he spent hours in it He's been prepared and trained to go home. Take a moment to imagine what that journey home, when he finally did leave hospital, would be like. And we'll explore that and some of the conversations that David had as people came to the house in our next episode. Next time... On the Rathband tapes. That was the first time that I actually knew that something had gone drastically wrong in that control room. With thanks to series consultant Rob Jones, this is a Horny Media and Publishing Production.